Hey, this is Rupa. I work in the newsroom of the world in Boston, and like every newsroom I've ever been in, there are books everywhere. Publishers send us stacks and stacks of books. And recently one stood out, not just because it's hot pink. It's titled, One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. And then half of the words are crossed out with black marker, so it actually says, One Day This Will Matter. It's by Sachi Cole, this young Indian-Canadian writer from BuzzFeed, who does commentary on all the things people disagree about, like culture, race, the internet. Sachi's a prolific tweeter, and one of the producers for the world, this lovely lady named Joyce Hackle, had taken notice when Sachi tweeted that she was looking to commission non-male, non-white authors for BuzzFeed. The response was an onslaught of really hateful tweets, the worst of which said stuff like she should be raped. Sachi suspended her Twitter account and just stopped participating. She came back two weeks later, and then she put out this book. Joyce gave it to me. I read it and was like, whoa, this is otherhood. Because Sachi gets at all the weird perspectives that fascinate me like how kids of immigrants are kind of the first of their kind in their new country, and they're a whole generation figuring out their identity kind of from scratch. And then they're also going back to their parents' countries and getting a really unique perspective on race and privilege in the two countries. Sachi takes it a step even further in her book to consider how kids of immigrants are marrying outside their demographic group. And there are these new hyphenated kids, and they'll have all these new identity issues. And we're just seeing the early stages of that now. So I wanted to talk to Sachi. The lovely Joyce set it up. And in this Otherhood short, a conversation with Sachi Cole. Hi, Sachi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Do you happen to have a copy of the book there? I do, yeah. Okay. Because do you mind if I ask you to read something? No, I'm happy to. Yeah. I Last uh, last interview I did, I forgot to bring one, so I've learned my mistake. Okay. All right. Um, is there anything in particular you wanted me to read? Or? Yeah. Um, I was going to start on 72. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That graph? Yeah, that's fine. While Canada purports to be multicultural, Toronto in particular, a place where everyone is holding hands and cops are handing out ice cream cones instead of, say, shooting black men, our inability to talk about race and its complexities actually mean our racism is arguably more insidious. We rarely acknowledge it. And when we do, we're punished, as if we're speaking badly of an elderly relative who can't help but make fun of the Irish. The white majority doesn't like being reminded that the cultural landscape is still flawed, still broken. And while my entry into something like Canadian media, for instance, hasn't been an easy ride, it has been made more palatable for other people because I am passable. I'm not white, no, but I'm just close enough that I could be and just far enough that you know I'm not. I can check off a diversity box for you and I don't make you nervous, at least not on the surface. I'm the whole package. (laughs) Okay, so from there, you go on to talk about the racism you experienced as a kid and kind of compare that to your niece, who's half white and has a very different experience. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, uh, my my niece is, she just turned seven and she lives in the same town that I grew up in, which is uh, still a pretty 
white majority town. It used to be a, a lot more conservative when I was there. But I, I realized that she's going to have such a different life than I did because, you know, she she's quite fair skinned. She's got blue eyes. She doesn't look like a lot of her family, at least on her dad's side. And it's such a weird experience to not really be able to know what her experience with race or with racism or with cultural norms or with the city will be like because she's just not going to have the same life I did. There's this really striking scene where, you know, she's a baby and you're rubbing lotion into her and you're thinking about her skin and your skin. Can you describe how you felt when that was happening? Yeah, I mean, I think I certainly felt like this. And I think a lot of brown kids and and brown girls maybe in particular feel like this where they grow up kind of self-loathing. They really hate themselves for being darker and they don't know what to do about the fact that they're different. And when I was putting lotion on her, she used to be she used to be very pink. She had very pink, uh, peachy skin. And I was looking at how my skin looked against hers. And I had this flash of hatred again, where you where you think like my my skin still isn't as good as hers. And it's it's such a, a learned thought, something that you you're you're taught from a very early age about white supremacy and, and white beauty norms and what's considered attractive and what isn't. But what a weird, terrible thing to think while I'm taking care of my little niece. Yeah. And your niece, not, you're kind of watching someone who's white, like can pass for white, grow up and, and you're you're reacting to things she says. So in the book, you talk about going to India and her reaction when when you told her. Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I had this reaction too, but it, maybe it scared me more with her because she doesn't look like a brown girl. When we first went to India when I was a, a kid, I also sort of thought, well, everyone's poor there and it smells bad. And and she sort of said the same things when she was about five. And again, all of this is stuff that we consume from other people. It's stuff that we learn. We're not born. You know, you don't come out of the womb and say, ah, I'm a racist. Like that doesn't happen. <laughs> But when she said it, it scared me even more because I kept thinking, well, when you go through the world, no one's going to know that you're a brown person. So now you're just some like racist kid <laughs> running your mouth. And, you know, she didn't know better. And, you know, obviously we talked to her. And, and But it, it's so striking how those things sort of get absorbed into us when we're really young. OK, and then you go to India. And can you yeah. talk about you, you saw a reaction to her and you watched the reaction to you. Can you contrast those? Yeah, um, you know, because she is half brown, regardless of, uh, you know, how she looks, my family was obsessed with her because, you know, this beautiful little girl that we had. But more importantly, everybody, people we didn't know were obsessed with her because they had never seen blue eyes. And so, you know, they would take her to tourist attractions with her mother and her dad and people wanted to touch her and hold her and take photos with her because she was this this sort of funnily enough, this kind of exotic beauty in India. And they were really obsessed with her skin. And it was this, the the way that whiteness is considered attractive and paramount to everything. And I get that experience there to some degree because I'm fair skinned. I have aunts who really admire my looks purely based on the fact that I'm relatively fair to them. You're also thinking at that time, you know, you, you grew up being told you're Kashmiri, Brahmin, smart, educated, worthy. Yeah. And then you get to India and you and you contrast kind of your privilege there and your privilege in Canada. Yeah. I mean, well, like no one in Canada cares if you're Brahmin. <laughs> like It's not going to come up. So that sort of privilege doesn't really exist. There is certainly fair skin privilege within uh 
Canada within, you know, modern Canadian society. But I think what I realized is the level to which I'm served. Because in Canada, certainly I deal with my fair share of, of racism. I'm still a brown person. I'm still an obviously brown person. I have a brown name. I have a brown last name. You know, you know that I'm not from here. It's very easy to throw that at me. Uh, but I, I still have a kind of privilege because I am fair. And some people can kind of, you know, they can look past it. But when I'm in India, I'm basically acting as a white person when I'm there because of my fairness and because of the privilege that I've been given with that. And that's not something that I ever really connected with until we took that trip. So have you thought about just like what happens now? Going back to Raisin, um, you call her Raisin because... I call her Raisin. Because she was very purple when she was born and hideous. (laughs) Like a raisin. Okay. She'll thank me later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, what you talk about your experience figuring out yourself over a long period of time and how she's going to have to go through that experience now and how it's going to be both easier and harder. What do you think that's going to be like in the next generation of Canada? Oh, I don't know. It's going to be complicated. I mean, these things are, are slow burns. So just because I feel like we're talking about racism more now than we were when I was a kid doesn't mean things are going to resolve themselves by the time my niece, for example, is my age. I don't I don't know what's going to happen. I hope that, you know, some changes occur. But again, these things take such a long time. But at the very least, I feel like at least from from Raisin, I've written her an entire book about how it's going to go and what she's going to deal with. So hopefully she can use that as a manual or at least she'll have some protection emotionally. I was going to ask you, do you mind a little bit about BuzzFeed? I was looking at its um, working definition of diversity. Uh, I'll quote, BuzzFeed's working definition of diversity is this, enough people of a particular group that no one person has to represent the supposed viewpoint of their group, whether ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religion, gender identity, socioeconomic background, or disability. So the the motto of BuzzFeed is diversity is that you don't have to represent your point of view. But, you know, you actually do make a point of that. So why have you made that choice in the book and in a lot of your writing? I mean, that's something I'm comfortable talking about, and it's something that I'm willing and happy to discuss and I think because it's informed so much of my identity and so much of my experience as a as a writer or just as a person it feels unavoidable for me to talk about it but I can understand if you are for example a person of color and you don't want to have to be pigeonholed as a writer for people of color if you're a reporter you don't want to only have to talk for that community it's not fair it really cuts you off at the knee and it and it means that editors will only come to you with one thing So I think that's actually a really nice definition of what diversity can mean. And, um, you know, I think it's good that people think about it that way instead of just thinking about like, okay, let's just check these boxes and then we don't have to worry about it. Because it's not just about who you hire, but it's also what you hire them for and how you treat them and where they end up existing in your company. You in the past have gotten some really horrible reaction from people like just calling you names, saying horrible things that caused you to take a break from Twitter for a while. Yeah. But then you come back and, and now you have a book that shows kind of even more of you, puts yourself mm-hmm. out there for people. So what has the reaction been from people and from your family, from your community? Sure. I mean, I would I would say mostly positive. One good thing about a book versus writing tweets for the Internet is that tweets are free. And so people are happy to yell at you based off of a tweet 
or five. But a book has a cost of entry. So very few people are going to buy a book just so that they can yell about it. It doesn't happen that often. Although if it does, like, great, happy to have that sale. Um, <laughs> it seems to be going over relatively well with my community. I mean, you know, brown people are not an amorphous blob that I can sort of go to the committee and make sure that they're okay with it. But, like, it seems to be doing well. And, um, you know, my family's happy with the response. My dad didn't read it because he knows it would upset him. My mom liked it. My sister-in-law liked it. She bought a copy for my niece and we'll give it to her when she's a little older. And I don't know, it's been going pretty well, I gotta say. Have you thought about, uh, you know, with this whole uh, international refugee crisis and then going back to the whole privilege thing, how people like you and frankly me can, can choose how and where to stand in the political spectrum right now and how to yeah. use our privilege just like what role those kind of people are going to play in this, it seems like, the international dialogue we're having over isolationism versus taking in refugees. I mean, I think about it all the time. I mean, I think it's incredible how a lot of people have lacked a lot of humanity when it comes to the discussion of refugees or immigrants. But this sort of goes back to the idea of what responsibility people of color or anybody in a marginalized group has when they have platform. Because when you when you are privileged and when you do get a little lucky and you do get success and you work very hard to get an audience, of course, you want to use it to do some good. There's a quote from your book that this makes me think of. Yeah. How do you feel about this when people quote your book to you? Oh, I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should do it. OK, here we go. We are yeah. deeply afraid of making marginalized voices stronger because we think it makes privileged ones that much weaker. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you you kind of deal with that on a daily basis, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people in the majority sort of treat everything like a zero sum game. Like anybody else getting money means they lose their money. Anybody else getting platform means they lose their platform. And it's it's that's not how it works in most cases. But that's sort of how they treat the conversation. It, it doesn't it's it's like there isn't enough for everybody. Which. That said, if there isn't enough for everybody, then something else is wrong. Yeah, and, and that takes me back to the whole Twitter thing, because it, it almost seemed like some of your speech was, like, policed in the reaction oh, totally. to it. Yeah, it was, re it was, there was a lot of tone policing going on, and there continues to be. I still get uh, emails from people who, who basically want to tell me, well, you know, I agree with you, but I don't like your tone. It's like, OK, well, I don't care. <laughs> but, like, thanks for the email. I mean, th that's, that's going to be a problem for a long time for me, I think. But another thing that you say is it's not fun to have sympathy for the people who are trying to hurt you, as in you were thinking really hard about how to react to the haters online. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I, th I think it's understandable, but simplistic to treat them all like barbarians. I mean, I think a lot of them say things that are gruesome and not defensible, and I don't think they need to be defended. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I found really odd is that all of them seem to have some very real and very striking trauma and they just didn't know what to do with it. And so they handled it in the worst possible way, which doesn't, and I wrote this in the book, it doesn't make me feel good and I don't feel happy about it and it doesn't make me forgive them and it doesn't make me, you know, want to, it doesn't give them justification, but it does explain to me where it comes from. So can, can those platforms be a way that we engage with those people or or not? And, and should we be engaging? I mean, I'm not particularly interested in engaging with them. I think my bigger issue is that the platforms don't really care about people who are being abused on them. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's taken tw- Twitter a decade and some to pr- start to pretend like they care about abuse. And even then, the stuff that they're doing is is not really that revolutionary. I mean, I could have told them that they they needed to have a better report system. Like it's vague. It's it's not it's non-specific. It's not super helpful. I mean, I think there's a lot of talk, especially after the U.S. election, a lot of talk around everybody needs to get out of their bubbles. You know what? Yeah. I'm good because out of my bubble, there are racists and sexists and people who want me dead and who want me to kill myself and who, you know, make disparaging comments about my niece because she's biracial. I don't need to get out of my bubble. You tell them to leave their bubbles. So talking about the the American election, all that happened after you finished the book. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you feel? Is Canada different than America now? And how? I mean, Canada, of course, is a little different from the states. I mean, we are still a, a separate country, but ultimately we are influenced and vice versa by you guys in a very, by the states in a very big way. But we're not better. I think there's there's this belief that Canadians are better. We're polite. There's no racism here. There's no crime. No one pollutes. Like, it's not true. It's a it's a lie. We, in particular, like to tell ourselves to feel superior. But of course, Canada has, you know, there's there's incredible racism here. I mean, in Toronto alone, there's the, issue, there's the issue of carding black men on the street for no reason. There's an issue of police brutality against uh, black people in the city. Everybody pretends like immigrating to Canada is easy. No, it's not. The government doesn't make it easy. It's not convenient. There's nothing easy about it. But because there's this sheen over it that everybody likes to pretend like we're happy, shiny people, it becomes even harder then to talk about what's actually happening. And I felt this was true with the election in the States, that the one the one thing you could take from Trump's victory and from the rhetoric that came around his victory and continues to come out of that that presidency is that now there's a way to talk about blunt racism and sexism that a lot of people knew that was going on for a long time. There were all these white people after he elected who were like, I didn't know it was this bad. And you talk to a person of color in the States and they look at you and say, well, I knew. Mm -hmm. But are we moving forward from there? I mean, apparently not. (laughs) Honestly, apparently not. I mean, even in Canada, I look at some of the candidates running for the conservative leadership and I'm terrified. And, you know, even with Trudeau, I don't he's not that effective. I mean, he's he's dangling wokeness in front of us, but I'm not sure for what he's I'm not sure to what benefit. So I don't no, not really. I mean, all I feel right now is nervous. Hmm. Okay, Sachi, is there anything just before? Before we end, is there anything like no one's asked you that you would always wish that? Because I know you're doing a lot of <laughs> interviews right now. I mean, is there something you're not getting a chance to say? I don't know. I don't think so. You covered a lot of good stuff. You asked a lot of questions no one had asked yet. So feel good about it. Oh, that makes me feel good. Thank you. Good. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to do the out tag. I, I love okay. saying the name of your book. Because Good, do it's it like again. A, say it all the time. <laughs> a title I can say with sarcasm. That's awesome. Yeah. Sachi Cole's new book is called One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. All right. It was awesome talking to you. Okay. Lovely to talk to you too. Bye. Bye. As I close out, I'll let you know that we're going to have another Canadian Indian next episode. Super YouTube star Lily Singh. So. See you back here next week. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this has been an Otherhood Short from PRI.